book of James chapter 2 as we make our way through this uh, letter. And so we uh, come to verse 14. Familiar passage to many of us, I trust. Verse 14, and I'll read down to the end of the chapter. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired word. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the, ne- the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you, by my, I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today that you would pierce our hearts with your truth. Grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask all this in his name, amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, throughout our time in the book of James, I have attempted to show you how James, how much in common James has with the apostle Paul whether it's uh, in in the fact that they both teach that God uses trials in our life to produce in us steadfastness and to sanctify us in Christ, or how we showed the similarity between James's concept of the law of liberty being identical to that of Paul's, the the law of the spirit and of life. I've attempted to show to you that these men, contrary to popular belief, were not at odds with one another, but rather they stood shoulder to shoulder to defend the truth claims of the gospel, even as we see portrayed in Acts chapter 15. But perhaps as I was reading our passage today, and as, as you were listening to it, perhaps you were thinking, all right, James, you've gone too far. Now you've done it. You've gone out and contradicted the apostle Paul. For in fact, at least a surface reading might suggest that James is teaching something completely contrary to what the Apostle Paul taught, for example, in Romans chapter 3. Paul says in Romans 3.28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. 
Whereas James says in our passage, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Indeed, this passage has been a, a passage that's been debated throughout church history. And the question is, do James and Paul contradict each other? If they do contradict each other, we're faced with a dilemma. Who do we side with? Who do we believe? Who do we go to for the doctrine of, of justification and how God works in our life through faith? Well, as good Reformed Christians, I hope you're all thinking, well, the Apostle Paul, of course. But that's not how it works. You see, we believe not only that the New Testament and the book, Scripture as a whole was penned by different authors, we believe that there is one unified author, that is the Holy Spirit. Since we believe in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we can't pick and choose which authors we like or who we want to listen to or who uh, uh, we want to ignore. Others insist that James and Paul, in fact, do not contradict, but what they try to do is get them to say the same thing. And so they try to get either Paul to say the same thing that James says in James 2 or vice versa, but that doesn't work either. The solution to our dilemma today is to recognize the simple fact that James and Paul are addressing two different topics. Although they use the same word, justify, they employ that word, they have two different meanings for that word. Paul is answering the question, how are we made right before God? And the answer clearly is by faith alone. Whereas James is asking, how do we prove the genuineness of our faith before others? To which the answer is by works and not by faith alone. So as we look at this passage, I hope that it becomes clear that James and Paul do not contradict each other, but Paul in Romans 3 and 4 is saying something different than James is saying in chapter 2. And in fact, we can go to other parts of Paul's writings. Think of 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and see Paul saying the same exact thing that James does in chapter 2. Of course, a bit of context is in order before we jump into the passage. Keep in mind, James has been stressing the need for us as Christians to live lives that are consistent with the faith that we hold in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That means that we will not show partiality to others, but that we will love our neighbor as ourselves, treating them with respect as well as mercy when they need it. And in so doing, we can expect to receive mercy in the day in which we will be judged by that law of liberty, where God will not treat us as our sins deserve, but rather will exalt his grace in our lives as mercy triumphs over judgment. And so with that in mind, the, the, keeping in mind the fact that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, we see James's next logical question where he says, what good is it? What benefit do you expect to receive both here as well as in the last day for if you merely claim to have faith, but do not have works to back that up? The key word here to, to notice is that one says he has faith. This is a so-called faith in name only. See, beloved in the Lord for James, talk is cheap. You can't just say you have faith. You have to prove it by works. And then he goes on to ask that question, can that faith save him? Well, what faith is he talking about? The so-called faith, the faith that is divorced 
from any sort of fruit in the Christian life. Can that type of faith save him, save you? Well, the answer, of course, is no. And to demonstrate that, he uses, he gives a tangible example. Once again, in this chapter, he's giving an example highlighting how we treat a person of lesser means. A poor person, whether a brother or a sister who is poorly clothed or lacking in food, coming to you. And notice once again, James says, and one of you says to this person. Again, it is, it is faith in word only without the actions to back it up. It says, if one of you says to this person, go in peace, be warmed, be filled. See, on the surface, these words are friendly. It's, it's a friendly greeting. Go in peace. It, it's, it's, it's a nice uh, prayer. Oh, I hope you are warmed. I hope you are filled. But there is no tangible fruit to back that up. There's no action to, to realize those things, being warmed and filled. You send them on their way. This friendly, even pious talk, if not backed up by deeds, is worthless. In fact, it is cruel to send someone away without giving the things, them the things that they need to survive in this life. And so James says, so it is with faith. Without works, faith by itself is dead. You see, we as Reformed Christians have always confessed that we are justified by faith alone, but that faith never is alone, but always is accompanied by good works. If one's faith lacks any fruit, then James tells us it is dead. At this point, James introduces another speaker into his argument. And this, uh, this speaker in verse 18 seems to suggest that it's optional whether you can have faith or works, but you don't necessarily need both. You have faith, I have works. As long as you have one, you're okay. But James says, prove it. You say you have faith, prove it. Now the question is, how do you prove that you have faith? Boys and girls, what does faith look like? What color is it? How much does it weigh? What does faith smell like? What does it do? You see, you can't see faith since it's a matter of the mind and the heart. The only way in which faith can be proven is through works. That's why James says, show me your faith apart from works. That's impossible. To which James replies, I will show you by my faith by my works. That is the only way in which faith is made manifest. And that's James' main point here. Prove it since talk is cheap. Now notice here something very important to note. James is not conflating faith and, and works. He's not saying that they're the same thing or that they're two sides of the same coin. No, he is making a distinction between faith and works without separating or divorcing them. And that's very important in theology. You always want to make distinctions without separating them. And that's precisely what James is doing, not conflating them. He's not turning faith into faithfulness. Because then that, makes a, that creates a problem when we say that we're, we're justified by faith alone. It's just as easy to say we're justified by works. He makes a distinction between faith and works without separating them. One is the root, the other is the fruit.
And so he goes on to talking to this, uh, dialoguing with this person that says they, says they have faith, but does not have works to back it up. He says in verse 19, you believe that God is one. Here, of course, he's referencing the Shema, the, the most ancient uh, Hebrew creed that the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The most basic statement of faith for the Jewish people as well as for us. And he says, you believe in the Shema. Good for you. Here you hint a, a little bit of sarcasm in James's writing. Good for you. You believe that God is one. Guess what? You're not alone. Even the demons believe that God is one. Even the demons have better theology than you, and they shudder. You notice here that he says that even at least the demons have some sort of response, some sort of action that, that shows that they believe that God is one. They're shuddering in fear and terror of the imminent judgment that's coming upon them. Whereas this other person who says he has faith has absolutely no response, no tangible action to prove it. Creeds demand deeds. If you really believe that God is one, if you really believe that the Lord our God is the only God, then you should love him with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is precisely what Moses told the Israelites to do right after he recited the Shema. Love him. Since he's the only God that exists, then you need to give him all of your being. So it is, faith without works is dead. But James needs to prove it. Do you want to be shown, you foolish man, that faith without works is dead? He appeals in verse 20 to scripture to prove that faith separated from works is useless. Here in the Greek, you would appreciate a word play. He literally says faith without works doesn't work. It doesn't do anything for you. It doesn't save you. It doesn't benefit you. It doesn't benefit your neighbor. It is worthless. And so turning to the Old Testament to prove his point, he cites a very popular Old Testament figure, our father Abraham. And he asks a rhetorical question in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works? Now, the answer to this rhetorical question is an emphatic yes. Yes, Abraham was justified by works. But here again, it seems as if the apostle James is contradicting the apostle Paul, who in Romans chapter 4 made what seems to be the exact opposite point. He says in Romans 4.2, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. There, the Apostle Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 15 to prove that Abraham was not justified by works, but rather was justified by faith alone. But James seems to say the exact opposite. So how do we reconcile these two claims? Well, quite simply, James is using the word justify in another sense. Whereas the Apostle Paul uses that word justify to describe the act of God's free grace, whereby he forgives us of our sins and credits to us the, the righteousness of Christ. James is using that word in a different sense. But what's fascinating is that James actually quotes 
from the same Old Testament passage that the Apostle Paul does. Genesis 15, verse 5, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so if you were to ask James, James, when did Abraham believe God and it was credited to him as righteousness? He would say, Genesis 15, 5, of course. But he doesn't use that act of God imputing to him the righteousness of Christ. He doesn't use, he doesn't describe that act with the word justify. But he believes in it. And so he agrees with the Apostle Paul that Abraham was, was uh, had the righteousness of Christ imputed to him way back in Genesis chapter 15. But James uses the word justify in a different sense. He uses it, he, and what he means by the word justify is to prove or demonstrate that you are in fact righteous. And this is a perfectly legitimate use of the word, even in English today. We talk about, uh, you know, trying to justify yourself. You're not saying that, that, you, that you're forgiving yourself of your sins and imputing to you righteousness. No, you're trying to prove, you're trying to prove that you are in fact in the right. We see this, for example, in Luke chapter 10, the lawyer came to Jesus and asked him what, what he needs to do to inherit eternal life. And Jesus says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that perfectly, then you will live. To which the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, says to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? You see, this lawyer wasn't trying to get God to forgive him of his sins and give to him the righteousness of Christ. No, he was trying to prove, although wrongly, he was trying to justify himself before the Lord. Another, another example, Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, wisdom is justified by her deeds. Now here Jesus isn't saying that wisdom has its sins forgiven and the righteousness imputed to it. No, he says that wisdom is proven or demonstrated by those actions. Much in the same way that James will say in chapter 3, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You can't just say you're wise. You've got to prove it. You've got to justify it. You've got to demonstrate it. One more example. Romans chapter 4, verse 4. The apostle Paul says, Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Here Paul's quoting from Psalm chapter 51 where David is saying before, to the Lord that the Lord will be justified, proven to be in the right when he judges wicked, sinful people. Here, James, Paul and David are not using this word to suggest that God needs his sins forgiven and the righteousness of Christ imputed to him. No, he's saying that God will prove, demonstrate his righteousness, his justice, when he condemns the sinful, fallen world. And so here we see just three examples, and we could add more, of how this word justify could be used in a different sense, namely to prove or demonstrate that you are in the right or that you are righteous. And that, I suggest, is precisely what James has in mind here when he says that Abraham was justified, that is, he proved, demonstrated that he was righteous when he offered up his son Isaac. You see, Abraham demonstrated the genuineness of his faith and righteousness by obeying God to offer up his only 
son. Here, of course, James is referring to the story we read of in Genesis chapter 22. And this is not just some random event that he just cherry-picked out of the Abraham narrative, but this is the climax of the story that we read of, of Abraham in the book of Genesis. Throughout his entire adult life, their entire married life, Abraham and Sarah were awaiting the birth of, the, of, of their promised son, Isaac. And they finally received Isaac in in their old age, Abraham being 100 years old when his son was born to him. And the birth of Isaac, of course, was crucial for the fulfillment of the promises of the gospel as they were given to Abraham, God promising him both a people and a place. Without Isaac, none of those things could be realized. And having having waited decades in their old age, they received their son to which God gives him the final test offer him up as a sacrifice. Sacrifice your son. This is Abraham's final and greatest test that he faces in the book of Genesis. And his obedience was itself an act of faith, particularly faith in the resurrection. As the author to the Hebrews tells us that Abraham considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. So we see Abraham was willing to go through with this uh, hard command of God. He was willing to plunge that knife into the chest of his only begotten son because he knew that God was able to raise him from the dead. And he knew God would raise him from the dead because God would not falter on his promises to give him a people and a place. So we see Abraham's obedience being a tangible expression, proof, demonstration of the fact that he had faith. James describes this as his faith and his works working together. Once again, he's not conflating the two. He's not making faith into faithfulness, but no, he says faith and works are working together and his faith is completed by his works. Now we might ask, well, in what sense was Abraham's faith completed? Well, certainly not in the sense to suggest that Abraham's faith prior to Genesis 22 was somehow insufficient or lacking, since we know he was justified by faith way back in in chapter 15. Abraham, Abraham had authentic, genuine faith all the way back in chapter 15, but it's not until chapter 22 that he proves it by passing that final and greatest test. And so his faith and his works were working together to show, to demonstrate, to justify the fact that he in fact was righteous. This is what the Apostle Paul describes as faith expressing itself through love in, in, in Galatians 5 verse 6. And so that's why James can say scripture was fulfilled. Now, what scripture? Here he's quoting Genesis 15, that passage where we read Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. If Moses didn't give that detail there in Genesis 15, 5, we would have no idea if if, if Abraham had faith in God. Not until chapter 22. 
But you see, Moses, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us that detail way back in chapter 15, Genesis 15 to tell us, to clue us in that Abraham at that point believed God and at that point was justified. But he really doesn't prove it tangibly, according to James, until Genesis chapter 22. And we see this even in the narrative. In a remarkable statement that the Lord gives to Abraham after Abraham was about ready to plunge his knife into the chest of his son to sacrifice him, the angel of the Lord cries out and says, do not harm the boy. Do not kill him. To which the Lord goes on to address Abraham and he says, now I know that you fear God seeing you have not withheld your son from me. What a remarkable statement for God to make. It shows here his accommodation, his willingness to stoop down to our level and talk to us in terms that we can understand. Surely God knew that Abraham believed and feared him. And he didn't have to give him the test in chapter 22. But he did, not to prove it to himself, but to prove it to Abraham. And to prove it to all of us who are sons of Father Abraham. To show, visibly demonstrate that he in fact had faith and that he in fact was righteous because of faith, because of the righteousness of Christ imputed to him. So Genesis 22 really is that tangible uh, proof of Genesis 15. This is what it means to be justified according to James. To visibly demonstrate that you are in fact righteous. Well, bolstering his argument, James throws in yet another somewhat unexpected Old Testament figure. He gives first a patriarch, the next example, a prostitute, Rahab, who we read of in Joshua chapter 2. Boys and girls, I'm sure you know the story where they sent the spies into the city of Jericho. The two spies went in and Rahab received the spies and hid them from the the guards of Jericho who were seeking to put them to death. She did the old, you know, hit them in the the roof, and she told the guards they went that away, and then she sent the spies out the other way. Now, unlike Abraham, who in Genesis 15, we read explicitly that he had faith. Nowhere in Joshua are we told explicitly that Rahab had faith, but she made it clear by her actions. Listen to what she told the spies as she, was, uh, as she was protecting them in her house. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. What an amazing testimony of faith that Rahab displays. I think, I think we could say of her that not a faith was found in all of Israel. For her, merely just by hearsay, 
to hear the mighty deeds of the Lord, to respond in fear and trembling, and then to just cast herself upon the mercy of the Lord in eager expectation of being saved. And you know, did you notice who she was appealing for? Her father, her mother, her family. She doesn't even ask for herself to be saved. She wants to save her family. She's thinking about her neighbor. Are we in any doubt that she has faith? No. How do we know? She's proving it through her works. If Rahab would have received the two spies, and, she, and if she would have just said, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without saving them from the guards, would she be saved? Would that type of faith save her? Well, no, certainly not. She needed to save the guards in order to be saved. She proved that she had faith by her works. A faith that is completely devoid of any works is like a lifeless corpse. What a vivid word picture that James gives to us today. You can't expect much, much action out of a corpse. Well, so it is with a faith that is in name only, that is separated, divorced from any sort of fruit in the Christian life. As we, con- as we conclude our study of this well-known and familiar passage, it's ironic that perhaps one of the best people to summarize James's point that he's trying to make in James chapter 2 is given by Martin Luther in his preference to the book of Romans. This is what Martin Luther says. Oh, it is a loving, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. It is impossible for it not to be doing good things incessantly. It does not ask whether good works are are to be done, but before the question is asked, it has already done this and is constantly doing them. Whoever does not do such works, however, is an unbeliever. He gropes and looks around for faith and good works, but knows neither what what faith is nor what good works are. Yet he talks and talks with many words about faith and good works. May God, by his grace, grant that we may be not only hearers of the word, but doers also. May he grant to us not only saving faith, but also works, fruit, to demonstrate that faith before our fellow man, not only for his glory, but for the good of our neighbor. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you that you have come not to condemn the world, but to save the world. And you have done so by fulfilling every jot and tittle of the law for us. And you impute to us your perfect righteousness by faith alone. But we thank you also, O Lord, that that faith never is alone, but is always accompanied by good works. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to produce in us more and more of the fruit of the Spirit as we humbly rely upon you for your glory and for the good of our neighbor. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.